Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off-limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. Hi, this is Carl Alvarez from the Inside Metal Series producer, and you are listening to Mark on Talking Metal. Welcome to another edition of the Talking Metal podcast, home of all things hard rock and heavy metal. I'm Mark Striegel, host and producer of this show since 2005. Now, let's get things started with the Talking Metal theme song, written by Rob Halford, Metal Mike, and Roy Z. Hey guys, welcome back to another edition of Talking Metal. Happy New Year. It is the first podcast of 2017. And uh, yeah, I had a little time off. I was on vacation uh, with the family, out visiting the in-laws in Indiana, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Then I was on jury duty for a while when I got back. So it's it's been a little hectic and I apologize for the lack of podcasts. But here we are and hopefully back on schedule with... Uh, Podcast hitting every Tuesday, and we are in 2017. Today's guest is Carl. He is one of the producers on the Inside Metal documentary, which is great. They've done two episodes of it over the past couple of years. Uh, they're doing more. He'll, he'll tell us a little bit about the next one that's coming out, episode three. But episode two, if you're into the L.A. metal scene like I was when I was growing up and I'm still into it, it's a must-watch, guys. It's so good. Uh, they did a great job with this, and it's uh, Inside Metal, and it's uh, available to watch on 
Amazon. We'll also have the DVD linked through today's show notes on TalkingMetal.com. And again, the the second edition of it is called uh, The L.A. Metal Scene Explodes. It's on Amazon Prime. If you do like streaming TV and you watch Amazon, you can check it out there. Um, You can also, like I said, order the DVD by going to TalkingMetal.com and checking in with the show notes for today's episode. Uh, Before we get into talking about L.A. Metal and doing uh, some L.A. Metal music, listening to some L.A. Metal music from back in the day, let me just cover a few things. You know, I just want to reiterate, I've said this before, but this podcast sounds so much better if you get it through iTunes as opposed to listening to it on Spreaker. Spreaker is a platform that I pay uh, to use. Sometimes I wonder why I'm paying for it. There, I guess specifically because they have these embedded players and some of the blogs like the embedded player. But the bottom line is that they crunch the file when I submit it to them and they make it sound bad. So music to me, whenever I listen to it on the Spreaker player, doesn't sound that great. So if you're somebody who listens to this show for the music, as well as the interviews and the chat, I suggest going to iTunes and subscribing to it there and just downloading it that way. It sounds so much better. I don't, I, it boggles my mind why people who even just do, um, you know, interview based shows with no music post their, their, their files as mono on, on iTunes, uh, Eddie Trunk for one of, for example, I mean, even that like little intro music he has, it sounds so bad. Why wouldn't you do it as a, uh, a stereo file. Uh, maybe that's a podcast one thing. I don't know because I noticed Tom Arnold's podcast does the same thing. So we are again going to address some some listener voicemails that we got. Uh, please call me and leave your voicemails. The number is nine seven nine seven three seven five seven one nine one seven. Again, the number to leave a voicemail, 973-757-1917. If you leave a voicemail, I most likely will play it on the show. I did accidentally delete one of them that came in over the past uh, week, so sorry about that. Call me again if, if you don't hear your uh, voicemail on this episode. Leave another voicemail. I will play that. So, yeah, we're going to get right into these voicemails. Just uh, please remember to write in a review for us on iTunes. In the iTunes store, go write a review for Talking Metal, preferably a positive one. Follow me on Twitter. The Talking Metal account that I run is at Talking Metal. And then I have my solo account at Striegel, uh, which is S-T-R-I-G-L. I don't, uh, you know, and then I have, uh, you know, the, the solo account, the Striegel account is no pun intended because I said solo is more like Star Wars stuff than uh, than talking metal, but yeah, you get it. And talking metal on Instagram, you can do that. I'm on Snapchat, Captain T Head. All this stuff is listed in today's show notes on talkingmetal.com. So cool. Call the hotline, write us a review, use our Amazon links. That's how you support what we do here, or you can give a PayPal donation. Uh, just simply like our Facebook page, whatever whatever the fuck you want to do. You know how it goes. All right, here we go. Voicemails from you guys. Uh, let me pull these up. 
Hey, Mark. It's Matt up in Rochester. What's going on? Hey, Matt. Hey, uh, yeah, man. I just wanted to let you know I'm listening. Obviously, a longtime listener. And, uh, cool, cool. I wanted to comment on a couple things you brought up recently on the show. Um, you know, as much as uh, I've been listening to you guys for a super long time, since the early days, right. you know, John was great and liked the dynamic you guys had. But quite honestly, it's been your show for a while now. So, um, you know, that right. is talking metal. That's where the future is uh so thank you you know we all want you to keep it up and keep it moving so what you're doing has been great and uh looking forward to more interviews and uh new stuff for the next year and uh emily's been doing some great interviews as well just want to add that and uh, looking forward to more of those in 2017 and uh yeah hey i just wanted to see what you thought about the new star wars uh, oh yeah open weekend in my opinion, Star Wars could do no wrong. Um, so, yeah, I loved it. Anyways, uh, just want to see what your opinion on that was. And uh, if you get a chance, you want to play a new tune, there's a cool band called DGM. Uh, there's a tune called Fallen. That's really cool. Uh, yeah, check it out. All right, man. Okay, Happy New DGM. Year, and I'll talk to you later. See ya. Okay. Uh, hey, Matt, and good to hear from you again. I know we've we've been in contact before. Always great to hear from the longtime listeners. So let me just, uh, I don't know DGM. Hold on. Let me just see if I can find that on iTunes. Okay, Matt, I'm looking for DGM, M, uh, the song Balm, B-A-L-M, or was it Bomb? I, anyways, I'm not, I'm not seeing this group on iTunes. So send me a little more information. Hit me up on Facebook or Twitter or mark at talkingmetal.com is the email, and I will try to get that on for you on a future episode. I'm very sorry. Uh, can't find it. Maybe I'm misunderstanding what you're saying. Anyways, yeah, you're right, man. I mean, it's like, you know, the show's been mine for a while. Thank you for saying that. And I feel very fortunate to have the, the one and only Mitch LaFon working with me because he's really been... Um, a breath of fresh air, somebody who works so hard. And, you know, John in the beginning was really into it. I don't think he has a passion for it anymore, even though he says he does when he comes on the show. But, you know, he's got a, a band he's reformed and he's got a girlfriend. He's got a lot of ace. He's got a real job at Nickelodeon. So he's got a lot of stuff on his plate. And obviously, the priorities for someone in their life always rise to the top. And it's, uh, you know, after 14 months of not doing the show at all, and then what doing, I don't know how many shows he did in 2016. I mean, it can't be more than eight, right? I don't know. I mean, it's, it's hard for me to, um, think that talking metal is, is a priority for him anymore. So, which is fine. Listen, I, I get it. I get it, like I said. But I'm moving forward with this, and I really, in 2017, want to take this up a notch. Uh, Mitch and I are talking about how that could happen. So st- stick with us and go visit the website. That's that's a really important thing you can do. If you don't give PayPal donations, you don't use the Amazon links, you don't do anything, one thing you can do is visit our website. I, I'd appreciate that. And Mitch is posting news. We're breaking news on there. We're posting stuff that you know we used to send over to Blabbermouth to try to get them to pick it up. We're not really doing that anymore. We're just going to, if Blabbermouth discovers something we put on our site, 
which they have since we stopped sending them press releases, so be it. But we want to be kind of like what Metal Sucks is and what Metal Injection is, a, a, a place, a destination that you can guys can go to, not just a blog that, you know, is kind of secondary to our podcast. We want the podcast to be just one element of what Talking Metal Digital is. And that's my, when I say the podcast, I mean the podcasts, plural, Mitch's podcast, my podcast, Metal metal Raps. So yeah, so check out Talking Metal Digital um, on a regular basis, uh, TalkingMetal.com or TalkingMetalDigital.com. That's, uh, that's a good thing you can do. Um, and what else did you say? Oh, Matt, you said about Star Wars, right? Rogue One. I'm, I've become, my whole life I've been a big Star Wars fan, but I've become more obsessive with it in recent years. And I thought, you know, I've had a lot of discussions with a lot of different people about Rogue One, but I went opening night. I didn't go to like the Thursday night um, showing. I went to the Friday night showing after work, which was tough. I was just avoiding the internet all day because I didn't want to hear anything. So I went in pretty without many spoilers or anything without reading any reviews and i was blown away i thought rogue one was excellent in in some ways it was easier for me to watch than watching the force awakens was for the first time because my expectations were so high and i i just thought rogue one reminded me of like a star wars novel brought to life you know it wasn't about those those main characters although we had some of them creep in with darth vader and you know r2d2 c3po cameo and princess leia and you know i i I thought uh it was excellent excellent and i hear so many people mention the last 45 minutes as being excellent i thought the whole thing was excellent and i get it that people who only want to see chewbacca or something like that maybe aren't into it as much but this was a powerful movie this was really really well done and the other, I was talking to somebody the other day. They were like, "Well, the technology in there is so stupid. Why did he have to? Why they have to climb the tower to do that?" Dudes, this is a fantasy movie. This isn't reality. It's like saying, "Why? Why are? The, why? Why is the dragon so big? And in, in, why are the dragons so big in Game of Thrones? The lizards don't grow that big. You know, it's fucking stupid, man. This is completely fantasy. Their technology isn't. You can't compare it." to our technology here on earth it's star wars it's a fantasy it has nothing to do with reality if you want a movie that has something that's real or mimics reality go watch one of those movies this is this is complete it's star wars it's complete utter fantasy nonsense uh you know so you got guys, you know, raising objects and, and using the force and stuff. Don't talk to me about, well, the the computer technology that they were showing was unrealistic. The whole thing is unrealistic. So it fucking pisses me off when I hear people cut down Star Wars because it scientifically is not uh, accurate. Of course it's not. It's it's completely fake. And it's the best fucking fantasy story ever. Period. I loved Rogue One, Matt. Great, great stuff. And was just so happy. I, I took the, my kids back to see it when I was on vacation out in uh, Indiana visiting the in-laws and enjoyed it again the second time. Um, I haven't seen it in 3D. I kind of like to go see it in 3D, both the, the 
viewings I saw were um, were you know two D and it looks great. I'm not a big fan of three D, but I would le- at least like to see it in three D before uh, it's pulled out of the theater. Ben Mendelsohn, such a great actor, he plays Director Krennic. That that was just incredible. Tarkin, uh, I just read the Tarkin novel, which I highly recommend. Very, very good novel that that has a lot of stuff that kind of helps set up Rogue One. Um, you know, there there's another novel now that's even closer to Rogue One. Oh, and uh, yeah, Ben Mendelsohn. I'm just going off on a tangent here. Such a good actor. Love love loved him in Bloodline and loved him in Rogue One. Uh, Forrest Whitaker. One of my all-time favorite actors, Saw Saw Guerrera, did an excellent job and really some good talent in this movie, including not just in front of the camera, but behind the camera. So that's that. Uh, All right, let's get to another one of these. Uh, Matt, thanks so much for your call, and please keep in touch. Let me know what that group was that I can't figure out, and I'll get it on a future podcast for you. Guys, stay tuned for our interview and discussion on L.A. Metal uh, coming up just in a little bit. Let's get to the next call. Here we go. Hi, Mark. This is Pete from South Wales. Um, I love Pete. the podcast, and I've been listening for I know this well, guy. eight years now. Yeah. Um, for some reason, enough's enough. Sort of passed me by. I didn't know any right. of the albums. Didn't know any of the songs. Didn't know anything about them, to be honest. Uh, I listened to your interview with Chips It Off, and I became hooked. I love the band now. I'm an absolute bloody uh, addict. Um, got most of their albums now. And uh, just got Claims Lounge, and I'm loving it. Uh, cool. My question is, any chance of getting an interview with Donny V? That'd be great. And if not, just play some enough enough for me. Cheers, Matt. Keep up the good work. Pete. Uh, it's great to hear from you. I know you from Facebook, and, and you know people have told me that they feel like I'm a friend because they listen to the podcast on a, a regular basis, even though we technically don't know each other. Um, and and a guy like Pete, I feel like he's a friend because I, I, you know, he somehow connected with me on Facebook. He's a regular listener to the podcast. I, I, you know, see pictures of him doing stuff. I get, I always get a, a kick out of his posts, whether it's him talking about drinking and and listening to some music or or seeing pictures of his son or his or. or or your your daughter, you two you two you have two beautiful children, Pete, and uh, yeah, it's great to hear from you. I love hearing your voice for the first time. So thank you for making the long distance call across the pond here to uh, the United States of America. Uh, always great to hear from you. I'd love to speak with Donnie V. That is, it's interesting. I, I you know Chip in interviews has has put on a good face and makes it sound like he's he and Donnie V are still cool, good buds, friends. Um, at least that's the vibe I've gotten from the interviews we've done with him and, and the interviews I've heard with him, although I don't know that he's ever said that. But I can't help wondering if their relationship is a bit strained now, um, being that Chip has continued the band on without Tony V. I don't know. Maybe it's not. That's just speculation on my part. I should probably ask Chip the next time he's on the show. But um, I would love to talk with Donnie V. I don't, I don't even know how to get in contact with him, but maybe I'll have to uh, search him out and invite him on Talking Metal at some point. And we will definitely get some uh, Enough's Enough on for you right now. Let's just go with some classic shit here. This is Taking a Ride by Enough's Enough. Going over to Pete over in the U.K. 
All right, a little enough's enough here on Talking Metal for Pete. Good to hear from you, man. Thanks for calling in. Let's get to the next call right here. This guy doesn't identify himself, but he is Jeff. Hey, Mark. I don't know what that chick from Alabama did to your website, but it takes forever to load. Check out TalkingMetal.com. Load times are, I don't know, about 30 seconds, and then it comes up, and then you can click around. It's okay, but uh, check it out. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Hey, Jeff, thanks for calling. I'm assuming this is Jeff because you sent me a massive PayPal donation. And also in that PayPal donation note, you mentioned about this website problem. And this uh, voicemail came in right at the same time. So, A, wow. All I can say about that PayPal donation is, wow, thank you. I haven't been mentioning every single little donation I get here on Talking Metal. They're all greatly appreciated. But, Jeff, you went uh, above and beyond. So, thank you. Thanks for that. I don't take it for granted. Uh, the website, yeah. I, I don't know, Jeff. Um, I've tried it on different computers, and I have noticed that lag that you're mentioning. And that sometimes, and other times I don't notice it. So it, it, the only time I do notice it is when I go to the address bar and type in you know www.talkingmetal.com. And it's, sometimes it takes a little time to come up. Other times it doesn't. So I don't know what the deal is. Um, we, again, I, I have seen the issue happen sometimes. So you're, you're tipping me off. And I have reached back out to the girl in Alabama. And that was three days ago. And she hasn't responded. So I'm not sure. I might need somebody else to help me with the, the web work on this. We, uh, we want you to be able to visit TalkingMetal.com and not have any issues. Um, one thing I could suggest is if you go to talkingmetal.com slash digital, which is basically where talkingmetal.com redirects you and you bookmark that in the meantime, there should be no problems or lag times with, with that. So, but yeah, no, it's a problem dude. And, uh, any technical problems that people are having, we need to know about. So thank you for alerting us to this and, uh, I know we went back and forth with the emails and you were explaining what what you were seeing on your PC. So hopefully we can get this fixed uh, for you uh, sooner than later. So I appreciate that, Jeff. And let's uh, touch base in a week or two and see if it's uh, resolved, okay? All right. So, Jeff, by the way, you wanted to hear a song. You emailed me about this. And let's get into that right now. And then we got to get into my interview with Carl my discussion with Carl. Let's see. I have the song you requested. Devil Mint is the band, and the song is Full Dark, Full, full Dark, No Stars. I didn't really know these guys, so thank you for turning me on to them. Let's check them out right now on Talking Metal. And again, Jeff, thanks for your donation. Thanks for your note about a technical issue with talkingmetal.com. Here we go. A little devilment as requested by Jeff. Thank you.
We're going to start things off with one of the definitive hard rock metal bands. And the earlier stuff, to me, definitely had a metal vibe. You know, anything with with Warren Martini's guitar playing and, of course, the King, Robin Crosby's guitar playing, too. They had a highly overdriven guitar sound, very good, great guitar sound. Both of them. I mean, not just Warren. I mean, Robin's sound was was excellent and always gave it... The band, the me- uh, a metal edge. Judas Priest was an influence on this band, as well as you know Aerosmith and and other great hard rock bands. The band I'm talking about is Rat. So let's get into some early Rat right now on Talking Metal, and then we're going to get into my interview with Carl Alvarez from the Inside Metal documentary series. This is a song called You Think You're Tough. Now, here's the deal with this song. 
It was on the Rat EP, which came out before the Out in the Cellar album. If you remember the Rat EP, it had a pair of sexy legs, which actually belonged to Tawny Katane. It had a bunch of rats crawling up the the, la- the legs. And it's interesting because I had it like an alternate version of this this EP, which had an additional song. It had uh, You're in Trouble on it, which was then re-recorded for the Out of the Cellar release and I believe it uh, yeah I believe it was re-recorded I don't believe it was the same version that they used on out of the cellar and it was called the rat EP and it just said you're in trouble on the front and I bought this even though it didn't have the sexy legs on it I bought it over over the uh, other version of the EP because it had this extra song uh, you're in trouble again a song that was then re-released on out of the cellar um, and that Version, I think I have this right. The version of the album with the sexy legs on it did not have You're in Trouble. Uh, but both versions of the EP, if you're still following this, had Back for More, a different version of Back for More, which of course was, I believe, the second single off of Out of the Cellar. The Rat EP also had the cover Walking the Dog, an old blues song that Aerosmith had previously covered on their first record. So Rat did their own version of it on the Rat EP. The Rat EP was great. Uh, Sweet Cheater was such a good song. And just great stuff. So I highly recommend, if you don't know that early Rat EP, check it out. Good stuff. And um, yeah, so without further ado, let's do this. Let's check out You Think You're Tough. By Rat. I believe this is 1981, maybe 82, era Rat. So here, here you go. And then we're going to talk with Carl.
Hey, this is Mark Striegel of Talking Metal, and with us today we have Carl Alvarez, who is one of the producers on the Inside Metal documentaries. Carl, welcome to Talking Metal. Hi, Mark. Uh, I'm glad to be here on Talking Metal. It'll be an interesting show, so I really look forward to uh, talking with Mark about the movie as well as what actually happened on the ground level, which is quite an experience. It's fun to talk about it because it's 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 a good time. So I think we'll we'll dive into some some fun areas together. Absolutely. You know, we had Bob Nelbandian on, who is one of the other producers on the the documentary with us. Uh, he's been on twice actually, and he's. We've talked a lot about the stories that you actually cover in the documentary um, with Bob, and maybe we'll do some of that tonight. But I also want to talk to you just about the basic production of this thing, how you went about assembling it all. I mean, there, the amount of interviews you guys do is just uh, staggering. I mean, it's uh, really incredible. And it just, as somebody who does a podcast and somebody who works in television production, it seems like this was just uh, a hell of a lot of work. Um, what inspired the idea to do this? And that's question A. And question B is, did you realize how much work it was going to be when you came up with that idea? Well, the the simple story is Bob was approached by Joe Floyd, the guitarist of Warrior, who actually is a music producer too as well. And he's, he has his hands in a lot of different things that he does in that world. Um, he had been working with uh, an executive producer named Warren Croyle on various projects, maybe throughout the years. They kind of had a kind of a business relationship. Uh, right. There was a point where uh, Bob had actually interviewed Joe Floyd about music producers for his podcast when Bob did his Shockwaves podcast. And he had a bunch of other different people there too, just talking about favorite metal producers and such. And Kind of the question came up to to Bob because Joe, had, I guess Warren had said, you know, hey, we want to do some type of thing on L.A. and the hard rock scene and the '80s and this sort of thing. So I think that it was kind of recent, and Joe had approached uh, Bob kind of right around that time and kind of said, you know, you know a lot of different people of that era, and I know a lot of different people from that era. Maybe we can do something here. And uh, that's what kind of got the ball rolling. That was 2011 or 12, I can't remember. Okay. Yeah, 2012. So uh, fast forward, I, I, Bob and I would actually kind of also were doing something on the side too with the shockwaves. We kind of did right. like a video cast. So we were kind of in that visual world together too sure. as well, just in the YouTube sense. But so kind of brought me on board or kind of just kind of assemble all this stuff together. You know, when you start on a journey, you don't know wh where the journey is going to take you, what's going to come up, uh, these sorts of things. So kind of needed somebody to just kind of administratively put things together, whether it be simple editing or, you know, matching audio with video. That's kind of where I started in this whole project and Bob felt like okay you know the material extremely well and you have a passion for this and I just want to bring you in just as much as Bob has kind of been in the scene from this early era he kind of had like a blueprint of of what that was about because he lived it right. Joe lived it too he he was kind of like maybe 5 years earlier than us going 
from San Diego, where he came from, and coming up to L.A. and seeing Van Halen and, uh, you know, play at the roller rink, you know, or these clubs that were kind of sprouting out in this early era of time, which there was certain clubs that were established and other clubs that were just kind of rolling clubs that maybe six months later they weren't there or there'd be a different format. So Joe was out here too, kind of involved in, in that early part of the scene too. But he and his band Warrior too, they were part of the explosion of what we're talking about here with episode yeah. two. So he was a kind of an important part of this whole picture. And then me, you know, same time, same era. So we kind of kind of joined forces and just kind of knew we had a, a vision. Bob had a vision. Joe had a vision. I had a vision. And we just kind of culminated together and, and really took – I don't think we really actually knew what it meant to put all this stuff together because it's – like you say, it's a lot of material. It started out maybe with 20 or 30 interviews, but it started a steamroll where – you know what? We need this person. Oh, we need to approach that person. We saw little holes that needed to be filled to really kind of embellish the story a little bit better. And, you know, when you get somebody like Stephen Parisi, who took a while for us to kind of get him, and luckily through a connection of ours, Gina Zamparelli uh, reached out to him over and over. And finally he said yes. And it turned out to be a really good component to the whole thing, along with everybody else. I mean, right. I think everybody, status-wise, is on the same playing field because this is really the kind of the pregenesis or the genesis of, of the whole L.A. experience of what people, in terms of the, the what people know or think about the Sunset Strip and the whole rock scene in L.A., this is everybody's at that ground level telling their stories in the movie so assembling all this it, yeah it was it was a lot of work um and we were kind of just amateurs trying to do professional work and you know and actually having these compelling stories too so there was a lot of questions to these various artists and then there was a lot of talking right <laughs> so just pulling out the bits and pieces that was the hardest hardest part but we managed to do it and, and and like, it, how open were these people when you approached them? Like a Don Doc, and I mean, I can't believe Lars Ulrich from Metallica, which is talks to nobody unless you're like a you know Rolling Stone or a, a major media outlet. I mean, how how hard was it to get a guy like Lars Ulrich to do this? Uh, Bob has had a relationship with Lars for many many years. When actually, when Lars moved out here, um, Lars had a extensive extensive British of New Wave of British Heavy Metal Collection. Uh, word got to Bob, hey, this, I think through his friend Patrick Scott, they were kind of mutual buddies. And um, this is probably 80, maybe, if I can think way back then. Right. And, and uh, they went over to his place over here at Park Newport, over here in Newport Beach, and saw what this guy had, which at that time, nobody had collections as that deep. And there was a lot of, you know, when you got imports, there were like 20 bucks or right. 25 bucks. So you, that's a pretty much like a month's worth of allowance, you know. So here's a guy nobody knows from Denmark, and he's got this outrageous collection. And, of course, that started their friendship, you know, because the love of uh, this British, new wave of British heavy metal. So 
long story short, they've had an ongoing relationship since since then, and I think uh, Lars uh, Bob's on Lars' shortlist basically. So right. you know, Bob asked for you know kind of this type of favor. Lars is pretty good about coming to the table, which is great, you know. And we all kind of we all went up to. Uh, to the Metallica headquarters uh, when this interview was conducted. That was October of 80, 2012, I believe, or 2013. I can't remember. And it was a great experience in the sense that you got to see kind of behind the curtain of what Metallica is all about and just kind of ground zero of Metallica, basically, you know. And the staff was awesome. They're great. Uh, Bree, who is... uh, you know, Lars' assistant facilitated the whole interview. And basically, Lars just showed up. He actually was kind of running late that day, but he was very apologetic. And he, it was funny hearing him talk as kind of was an hour interview. And he really kind of lit up in a big way because I don't think anybody's really talked to him about this particular part of Metallica's career or even the scene so much, where right. which is actually more of the story of what he's talking about, of how... He started to get involved with the scene and, and meeting up with James and Ron McGovney and kind of this really innocent time for Metallica, you know, the progenesis of, of their beginning. So, um, Which was, of course, in L.A. I mean, a lot of people think of San Francisco when we hear Metallica, but Lars and James started in the Los Angeles area. And, that's right. And um, moved, I think, moved up to, to San Francisco because Cliff was up there. Yeah, that as the story goes, yes, exactly. I think we touch on it a little bit. Actually, we're working on episode three, which is the the thrash era, right. and Joey gets into that a little bit, and somebody else does talk about that too, about the whole scene, Cliff, for the first time, and Trauma played at the Troubadour with Bitch, uh, October 8, 1982, and then the kind of courtship started between Lars and James and, and Cliff to you know get get this guy in the band. We need him. Um, so this, even before that though, when Metallica was trying to get a name for themselves or just even start really, um, you know, but they had big dreams. You can hear their big dreams even back then trying to find Iron Maiden after a concert in 1982, going up to Hollywood, you know, uh, and Lars just coming back from, from his, uh, his, uh, last summer vacation when he went to Europe to, to hang out with the Diamond Head guys and go right. to all the European festivals. So, you know, you, you, you see what it means for a, a person to really kind of manifest their dreams as innocent with rock and roll and metal, you know. It's, it's pretty amazing. And, you know, Metallica is really still a people's band. They always will be a people's band. So it's really nice to get them in there. Whatever you could say about Metallica or Lars or whatever, you know, it, it kind of doesn't matter because this he's just like us really when he's talking about this beginning part so it was it was really cool to have him and it was actually an honor in that sense Absolutely. but like i said i think everybody status wise we're all i kind of just see it everybody's kind of the same because they're telling this beginning part in such a way that everybody was didn't really have a name for themselves we're trying to make a mark here right Quickly, you you know, you mentioned the next episode, and we've been talking about Lars and Metallica. Can we expect a? When can we expect episode three? And is Lars a big part of episode three? Well, it's kind of um, yeah. Without jumping ahead, just enough to jump ahead. Uh, 
we expected in 2017, kind of we're starting 2017, so I can imagine it coming out by summertime. Really? Okay, well, that's soon. Maybe by fall at the latest. Okay. Depends how it kind of all comes together. But Lars plays plays a role in it, sure. Um, you know, there's other players like Rocky George, uh, David Ellison. Um, uh, we got a kind of a surprise person at the at the very end that came through that I can't tell you, but one of the okay. bigger bands of the whole thrash scene. Um, but you know that that story really hasn't been told, and because it's really you know obviously San Francisco just took the baton, and L.A. doesn't really get recognized for its thrash roots. But I, you know, if you think about it, Metallica started here in Orange County. I mean, thrash Slayer metal. too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Slayer, Slayer played the Woodstock in Anaheim in Orange County. Um, so I think Orange County in Los Angeles is, it, I, I think is the birthplace of metal. I mean, you think of Dave Mustaine, he, he grew up out here in Costa Mesa and Huntington beach. So OC guys, basically. And right. James so, is from Brea. So in Orange County, so, you know, it's, it's an important part. Now, l- let me ask you, as somebody who's from that area, you know, you mentioned Orange County, which, which is not the city of Los Angeles. Orange County is is this county that what is south of Los Angeles and I I would call it more suburban. Um do you agree with that? Oh yeah, very yeah. much so. Yeah, and in, in New York where I'm from, the I always felt that in the city of of New York and specifically the borough of Manhattan, you know, where Wall Street is and Times Square and all the hustle and bustle, metal never never really thrived it it, it 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 sure at times it it had some popularity there but in the city of of, of new york city specifically manhattan it was always kind of frowned upon and never taken seriously yet it was in the suburbs places like new jersey where metallica came to to sign with with megaforce and and even queens and the outer boroughs where metal really connected with with people you know, and even though we think of the Sunset Strip being, you know, thriving and being such an important place in the history of of, of hard rock and heavy metal, is it safe to say that Orange County is is like you said, possibly the the true place of it, not the Sunset Strip? Oh, if we're talking about thrash, I would. Well, I'm def- talking about just hard rock, metal, thrash in, in general. Oh, okay, so we'll go. We'll go with that that kind of mental thought because I think you're onto something. And because I think the suburban kids were clamoring for something, and Orange County actually represented a little something different than the glitz of L.A. and Sunset Strip, which actually was kind of the the. You know, I would probably say it was the the uh, gr- ground zero for everything to come together. Right. Um, but you have to think about it too. All those early bands came from other places. Yeah. So yeah. we're talking Steeler. They came from Nashville. Motley Crue, although maybe three members were from Southern California, you have Nikki Six from San Jose who migrated down here. Uh, the Rat Guys—they're all San Diego guys. Jakey right. e. Lee was San Diego. 
Um, you know, George Lynch was from here. Randy Rhodes was from here. But there was a lot of guys that did come from other places, too. So, you know, I would say Sunset Strip was ground zero, for definitely, for sure. But these other areas really kind of had something different to offer. And the kids that were ready for metal were probably they were more fans of the music not to say the LA fans weren't fans of the music but there's a lot of other things going on you know um there's a lot of people trying to impress with the clothes or the hair and that whole thing where orange county had a pure attitude and clubs were more on a pure pure level in terms of the music right so um i don't know if that kind of gives you kind of a polarity between those two worlds which are very close together and we can't really actually forget about these other areas too uh, that are north of 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 or east uh, like Pasadena uh, sure. which is east of which is the Armored Saint guys and Snow yeah, yeah. early parts of Quiet Riot um, or Burbank where you actually have Randy Rhodes coming from Burbank and that's that's in the eastern uh, up, up valley the san fernando valley so it's just a combination of all these kind of like you say boroughs we have like areas the valley or hollywood central or orange county so it's kind of our borough system if you will definitely and do you think there's like what what is the reason that this style of music be it glam metal you know all the way through to thrash metal really seem to connect with kids in the suburbs more so than urban city kids why do you think that is is it the working class what what is it um well well i'll go back to orange county and it it there was you know during the reagan era it was this lot of talk about you know um you know the whole uh, uh these bombs and and the defense industry we had a lot of that out here now I make this connection between that as well as all the bands came. Let's say I'm gonna jump ahead, you know, with thrash metal. You know, Downey. There was a defense contractor that was here. Where Downey, you know, is a city that's kind of a suburb of Los Angeles. It's where Kerry King grew up. He went to Warren High School. The guys in Dark Angel. Um, you know, uh, um, Dave Lombardo was from from there, um, and the Stones Throw Away on the other side in Southgate, which is across the river. That's where Tom Mariah was from. Right. So it 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 this these kind of suburb areas just brought out a kind of a more pure thing. They didn't have to compete with the big hair or the cool clothes up in L.A. Um, so again, coming from this pure aspect, I think Orange County kind of had had that going for it and there was also something too the authenticity of what was coming at that time that led up to the explosion Lizzie Borden kind of says it really good in the movie about when they were kind of starting out and thinking that we can't be as big as Led Zeppelin we can't be as big as this but when they start to hear albums by Black Sabbath you know, when Heaven and Hell comes out in 1980, it's like there's a power that's different from the 70s. And then you got a, a band like Def Leppard who comes out, 16-year-old, 17-year-old kids on a major label putting out this new wave of British heavy metal thing. And it makes makes a lot of the kids say, I can do that. I, I'm just like them. And I, I've been playing guitar too. And, you know, and I, my, I could save up for those Marshalls. And, you know, <laughs> so that's kind of how the ball started rolling, really. 
because that's what you started to see in the scene. You know, when we talk about the pioneers, our first one, our first episode, it was really predominantly a rock scene. Yeah. Regardless, nobody called it metal. Nobody called it this or that. Maybe there was new wave, but that was a different beast, and that didn't associate with the rockers as much as the rockers didn't associate with them as much as the punk rock people didn't associate with the rockers. Although there was a little bit early on where they were sharing the same stages, you know, when Van Halen before Van Halen was signed, you know, they played with kind of these types of bands too. It's just kind of how the, how the landscape was at that time, but. It started to get more refined, and the kids were caught on to what what that was about. Especially, I believe, you know, I think Van Halen probably started it because right. they're a California band. But and then you saw a lot of bands that were doing kind of the Van Halen type trip, you know, the, the, the you know the the whole tapping and the whole Eddie Van Halen thing. But I think the new wave British heavy metal, along with the seventies artists, kind of infused everything together, you know. The Ted Nugents and the Aerosmiths and the UFOs, totally. and then you get the Black Sabbath and then the Judas Priest. So you could see the kind of this connection between where it started and where it was going in, in terms of the, even especially with the music industry. Absolutely. So your, your first documentary was the Pioneer, Inside Metal, the Pioneers of LA Rock and Metal. Now, the second one that came out. In, I guess it was 2016, the LA metal scene explodes. And you've mentioned you're working on the third one now, which is going to be th- thrash. But let's talk about this second one, which I, you know, I, I enjoyed Pioneers of LA rock and metal a lot. But I just, I loved what you guys did with the LA metal scene explodes, the, the second episode of Inside Metal. And, you know, there's so many great interviews and there's so many great little stories in there let's in general terms what year did the la metal scene explode well i i tend to talk about the lead up which i kind of addressed the scene really kind of started to take a metal sense in 81 82 right um but when it really exploded quiet riot releasing metal health the s festival Molly yeah. Crew, Shout Out the Devil. I mean, that's kind of the 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 three pinnacles, I guess, of of boom, this is going down and this is happening. It was solidified. Those are the three events that solidified the explosion. Because thereafter, all those bands who got signed that were playing on the scene, that were competitive with one another, that were coming up, they got record deals. And that's where the explosion happens. So Right on. Now, going back to Bob Nelbandian, you worked with him on on Shockwaves. Um, but where did you guys first meet? Where did you first encounter Bob? Oh, uh, Bob! I think we met in the '90s, but we yeah. actually were the we were probably at a lot of the same shows together and didn't know one another. So we were kind of in this parallel universe, I guess. But I didn't get I didn't get to know Bob until like the '90s, really. And I mean, he lived in Huntington Beach, and I th- I moved to Huntington Beach in the '90s, so I think we just—it was kind of a natural thing. Where, hey, you like metal? I like metal too. Cool, let's hang out. Let's, right. You know, and we kind of knew some of the same people too. This was before Facebook, where you could see, yeah, yeah. you know, it was like, oh, you know that person? No, no. Okay. So we kind of had a mutual uh, admiration for for what metal was about, and um, did you, you know. meet at a certain show or to a friend yeah. or? No, I think it was a friend of ours, Sean Baruch, uh, who actually sang for an 80s band called Titan, 
they were on Restless Records in the 80s, uh, kind of a little notoriety. But um, yeah, I was through him, and then we just became fast friends. So, yeah. Out of all the the stars and bands you've interviewed for for the documentary so far, I mean, from Metallica to Great White, Armored Saint, uh, Rat, you mentioned Stephen Piercy, Don Dokken is does has some great lines in in both both documentaries he's in. Um, who who were you the most starstruck with? Wow, that's really hard to say. Um, um, you know, I I like. It's, I'll pick two different people out. One would be Piercy, Stephen Piercy, for obvious reasons. I like Stephen Piercy for this notable matter, and the next person I'm going to mention for the same notable matter but for a different trajectory in terms of their career. But let's start with Percy. He came out here with nothing. And he starved, scratched everything he could do when he had his band Mickey Rat. And they just couldn't get a break in Los Angeles. And, of course, New Wave was starting to come on strong and punk rock. And they were fighting to make that rock thing happen. And I think when they came... When things really kind of to show themselves for Rat, it was 82 when Warren D. Martini came into the whole picture, really kind of changed the, the, the sound. But there was a lot of influx too. Like they didn't have a lot of money and they were sleeping in people's cars and it was just kind of that thing, you know? So hearing this kind of bare bones story and then, you know, just knowing his, his career and where it went, it's pretty amazing. And so, in that sense, I think, it, and as Piercy's actually a really cool guy, he probably puts a front on himself, right? But, you know, he he's a real dude, you know, and that's what I liked about him. Uh, the other person I was going to mention was Richard Black from Shark Island, who really were getting into the last phase of the whole Sunset Strip bands getting signed. They got signed to Epic and Epic Records in eighty eight and their record came out in eighty nine, but okay. they had a rough road too. They started out as the Sharks and we could actually even go earlier. He was part of the whole Pioneers experience too with his band Pretty Poison. And they were also from the the Pasadena, the uh, East um, San Gabriel Valley. They were out that way um too. So they were one of those types of bands too. But I I I find Richard Black kind of an interesting person an interesting take on the scene. He's he's kind of insular in terms of how he went about it and how he who he, who he aligned himself with and who he didn't align himself with. Right. And it, probably there's more people he wouldn't align himself with. They were kind of in their own um, in their own boat and trying to chart these waters of where they wanted to take their music and um you know it's it's unfortunate for them they kind of got the tail end of what the 80s were they they were a great band though really great band and and they had quite a history before they were signed right like they they even though they you know i always felt like there were certain bands that got that got signed late and to the you know general public the richard the record buying you know consumer throughout the country People like me, for example, were like, "Oh, well, they're they're third generation LA metal. They're, they're no good. They're clones. They're you know." But yet, some of these bands, it took them that long to get signed, and they were doing it for a long time. Is is that true with Shark? 
Oh, with with the sharks when they be, when they were the sharks, and then when they turned into Shark Island, which was probably eighty six, maybe eighty seven. Right. So yeah, long road for them. Um, but you know, they did it their way. They didn't copycat. They had their own thing, and that's one of the things we brought up out of many things with Shark Island. You know, the whole Richard Black, Axl Rose, who's doing yeah. who and who's doing what. You know, and right. You could say the jury's still out on that, or he tells his story, and you know, there's it's a lot of that kind of a lot of that going on in Los Angeles, I guess, you know, at that time. So, but those are two people, if you're asking me, I think those not in terms of starstruck, but really kind of like their their rich history, I guess. Definitely cool. Well, the documentaries plural is again uh, called inside metal just a great watch i watched it on amazon prime it is also available on dvd where is the best place the talking metal listeners can pick up the dvd well i would probably say amazon there's also um we have our metal rock films which is the executive producer it's a paypal situation you can get it there but i'm not sure how much it is i think it's a might be a little bit cheaper than going to amazon but again you have to have paypal by the way, uh, I'm on Amazon right now, and the first one, Pioneers of L.A. Rock and Metal, it's saying temporary, temporarily out of stock. Yeah, you know, they have a revolving inventory. It just, you know, don't let that kind of stop you from okay. buying it. The, the L.A. Know? Metal scene explodes, the second one, which is my, my, my favorite of the two. That is in stock. Um, yeah. Cheap, too. Nine, $9.89. Oh, yeah, perfect, perfect. Yeah, so, you know... It, there's not too many people, and I think that's why we came to the table of doing something like this. There's not, there's no, there was nobody coming forward and really telling the story. You know, a lot of people put their toe in the water and kind of do a kind of a broad stroke on the whole thing. We actually went in intensively and put this thing together. If you were there in 1982, 1983, boots on the ground, that's what you have seen. You know, n- no question by just hearing the stories in the movie. And that's, we really kind of felt like we accomplished a lot in terms of really, because we tried to explain, you know, if you tried to explain the scene to people that weren't there, maybe they have their own imagination of what it was like. But a lot of people have just made up, made up their mind on what that is. And that's not exactly correct. So right. having this kind of really present itself in the same manner, but in a really kind of more deep in a fan way that was really important for us to kind of get across and we definitely did and Absolutely. it's uh so in terms of that and in terms of historical significance of the scene um you know i mean i, I could sell it all day if i wanted to but see it for yourself it, it's this is really kind of how it went down and these are the people that were there ground zero so Right on. And we are, of course, talking about Inside Metal. The L.A. Metal scene explodes is episode two, guys. It's a great watch. We're going to have it linked through today's show notes on TalkingMetal.com. Definitely do yourself a favor and watch this. It's also on Amazon Prime, which if you do the Amazon Prime streaming thing, you can watch it there. It looks great. Sounds great. Carl, it's been great talking with you today. Oh, yeah. Very good, Mark. And uh, definitely appreciate your time and definitely... uh, Check it out, and we appreciate all your your whatever you're doing. We appreciate you guys in the community and what you're doing, Mark. It's, it's very important to keep this music and this kind of attitude and 
everything that goes with it alive. So thank you very much. Big thanks for uh, joining us, Carl, on this episode of Talking Metal. We're going to have Carl on the very next episode, and I love what he does on the next episode. He runs down like five like kind of cool behind-the-scenes moments he experienced kind of growing up in the L.A. club scene and share some very cool stories. I, 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 you know, not that this interview that we had on this episode with Carl wasn't good because it was, but I, I think he uh, really in this next uh, episode that we're going to have him do this top five list uh, really is, it's really good. It's really good. So definitely come back. And we actually may have a very significant figure from the LA metal scene on the next episode too. a guy that we we spoke about during the interview um i haven't interviewed him yet so i don't like to jinx it but i'm supposed to interview him on tuesday night so hopefully we'll have carl back on the next episode and also hopefully stephen piercy from rad will we'll see all right so having said that let's uh let's let's wrap things up with some more music this is hollywood rose Featuring, of course, Axel, pre-Guns N' Roses. This is Killing Time, a little early L.A. hard rock and metal here on Talking Metal.
guys, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Uh, again, go visit TalkingMetal.com. You know, speaking of L.A. Uh, metal guys, Tommy Lee made an appearance on my Snapchat feed in the studio with Andrew Watt, the great New York young, uh, he's got to be under 30, guitar player Andrew Watt, who played on California Breed with Glenn Hughes and Jason Bonham, and he had a good EP out last year that had some great like pop, I call them pop rock with a guitar edge songs that not a lot of people noticed. He also plays, uh, and I think, I think they're called heavy Chevy, I think with, um, Taylor from the Foo Fighters. He has a band with him. So Andrew Watt. Yeah. And Tommy Lee spotted in the studio doing some recording for who knows what, but I'm very curious because I love Andrew Watt and I love Tommy Lee and uh, can't wait to hear whatever they're cooking up. And it was interesting because Tommy, you know, he didn't have the big double bass crazy kit in the studio. It was more like a stripped down simple kit that he was playing uh, that, you know, when Andrew shot him on, on Snapchat. So at Snapchat's pretty, uh, pretty crazy. Um, thing if you haven't experienced it yet i i am starting to dig it and andrew watt is constantly posting stuff on snapchat so be sure to check him out and on that note i probably should go into some motley crew but instead i'm going to play wasp love this song (laughs) fuck like the beast little la metal early la metal here on talking metal with the one and only wasp Catch you next time, guys.